0: Earth Day's 50th anniversary is coming up this week, but most of us will be marking the occasion indoors due to the coronavirus. Global carbon emissions are falling as COVID-19 cases are rising. So what can a pandemic teach us about the climate crisis? These stories and more in a special one-hour environmental news roundtable. Joining me remotely, Beth Daly, editor and general manager at The Conversation U.S. Hi, Beth. Hi. Thanks for having me, Callie. -hmm. And Dr. Erin Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Bernstein. Great to be here. And Kabul Eames, legislative manager at the Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Hello, Kabul.
4: Hello. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I'm delighted to have all of you back again for this very important conversation. We actually have two contexts for the entire hour. One is Earth Day's anniversary, and we'll get to that later in the show. But we also have COVID-19 and the pandemic. And so looking at So much of what is going on through that lens, particularly as COVID-19 is impacting air pollution, mortality, as in this report that you just put out, Dr. Bernstein, over at Harvard. And it's very interesting, all of the connections between this pandemic and the environment. So let's start with you, because uh, this study is pretty recent and it has some, well, I guess not an unexpected conclusion, but it is one that we should know about. Please explain.
2: Uh, Sure. So, you know, I have these amazing colleagues at the Chan School who are just black belts when it comes to understanding what air pollution means to people's health. And they quickly worked on understanding what air pollution means in the context of COVID and found that people in the United States who lived in places that had worse air quality over many years, found that the air pollution that our lungs have been taking in and out over many years, really influenced the likelihood of someone dying from this disease, and and that it was accounting for lots of other things that can determine whether or not someone might be able to live, like whether they had pre-existing medical conditions, access to healthcare, their socioeconomic status. This is not terribly surprising. We have lots of other research showing that air pollution is bad for respiratory infections, both getting them and how sick you get when you get them. And then, of course, in the United States, we know that particularly African-Americans and Latinx-Americans are more likely to breathe polluted air. So in the context of what we're seeing, you know, in Massachusetts around the country, which is that African-Americans in particular are much more likely to die from this disease, it is concerning that the legacy of environmental injustice around air pollution may be manifesting itself in the likelihood of people of color in this country dying more from this disease.
0: What's been the response to your study? It's interesting because from within the chance
2: School, it wasn't terribly surprising. And, and I think it really, for people outside the school, has transformed the, the re- relevance of air quality. I mean, There's no question that air pollution in the United States is much better than it's been in the distant past. At the same time, many people don't know that in the last three years, air pollution has gotten worse in the United States, and that this administration continues to roll back air quality protections for people. And today, we're likely to find out that they're going to roll back another air quality protection around mercury pollution, which is toxic to developing fetuses. And so I think it's a wake up call for folks that, you know, the the protections that that we have put in place for air quality, you know, don't just make people who are on the verge of dying die. They make people die well before they're supposed to. If it's not from COVID, it could be from many other diseases. And then of course, there are lots of things that it does short of death, which is affect pregnancy outcomes, give children asthma who wouldn't have asthma, can affect brains. And so I think that it has been really making the issue of air pollution much more personal and direct. And and of course, the flip side of that that is that we know where this pollution is coming from, which is primarily burning fossil fuels. And we also know that we can do stuff to not burn fossil fuels. And the beauty, of course, that is that you have both there a pandemic solution
0: and a climate solution. Hmm. Um, Beth, weigh in, please.
3: Yeah, I I think that study was maybe not surprising to researchers, but what it did is really hit home for the general public that inequality is pronounced. um, And while the COVID crisis is a pandemic, it's Attending people in unfair ways and those already suffering from breathing in these particles are at, at much greater risk and that tend to be in places where a lot of poor people live as well um, you know we, we, at the conversation we, we looked at some even different parts of that um, definitely in urban areas but um, even we looked at uh, firefighters we had someone weigh in for firefighters um, because they're, they're breathing in wood smoke so it's a similar kind of um, not exactly the same issue, but uh, that they were, they were particularly at risk too for for, for COVID because of their um, their jobs. But the big message is is um, COVID is really underscoring that um, inequality in our in our nation in a profound way. Um, and I'm really grateful to the Chan School for for bringing that to the forefront because I think a lot of people weren't thinking about it that way.
0: Kabul, we've now referenced that um, persons of color tend to have uh, worse outcomes because of pollution. You're at a grassroots climate action organization, so you know this. But I just wanted to be clear about why that is. Somebody might say, well, what does that mean? Because they generally are living closer to highways, industrial facilities. There's more of those kinds of uh, fuels that emit the kind of pollution that leads to these connections in the areas where a lot of people of color are live. So that's how that connection is made. But I'd love you to also weigh in on the study.
4: Yes, well I it's it's a wonderful study and it, it always makes me happy when I see public health concerns being coupled in with climate change because that is really what we're talking about here. We're talking about public health when we discuss any form of climate related catastrophes. And frontline communities, they're they're plagued with this and they've been plagued with asthmas and chemical dumps for decades. And it's just not going away because no one is protecting them. And so they're, they're kind of the voiceless in all of this. And so I'm just encouraged because there's a lot of environmental justice policy out there now to address this horrible situation that we have put these people in. And when we have Pandemics like this, any sort of disease, really, it always affects them first. And so when we talk about climate change and when we've been talking about climate change over the decades, we've always said that it would affect the poor, the disenfranchised first. And now we're living it and we're seeing it and it creates an opportunity to really solve it, in my opinion. Mm
0: though I would note the aid legislation, the CARES Act, and all of the other stimulus packages have nothing in them to address clean energy or the climate. Now, here's something I want to move on to, which is that I tell you something that has been really impressed upon me in these last few weeks are the small little notations about what happens or what has happened because so many people are inside or not doing their normal activity and the changes they have made with regard to reduction of pollution. So, I've just been fascinated watching both the local and international reports about this. So I want to play something from WCVB's Katie Thompson. She was doing her regular reporting, as she does, at Channel 5 as part of the traffic and the weather conversation that they have there. And here she is talking about the reduction of pollution in Boston.
3: Pollution. Less cars means less emissions. According to the Herald, the Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection says their data shows pollution is substantially down and not just in Boston, but statewide. And while experts say it's no solution for the long term, next time you're outside, take a big deep breath because the air is certainly a bit fresher.
0: And here's something a little bit more specific. This is from uh, CNBC. Uh, They're talking about how the coronavirus quarantines have led to a drop in air pollution.
2: After the Chinese economy ground to a halt, PM 2.5 levels rapidly decreased by about 20%. Satellite images from NASA reveal proof of this significant drop in China, as well as in Italy, now considered the center of the global crisis. Major U.S. cities like Los Angeles, Seattle, and New York are also seeing major shifts, with researchers at Columbia University calculating that carbon monoxide emissions in New York City are down by over 50 percent.
0: So my question to you all, is this enough uh, to begin to have those people who said it's not caused by humans, none of this is caused by humans, we have to look elsewhere, to at least begin to entertain that possibility? I mean, you couldn't get clearer evidence here. I mean, I know you have to have more. This is considered anecdotal because it's so small for scientists, but I think it's pretty eye-opening. Yeah, well, we have been,
4: us environmentalists have have been reading the studies that 40 percent of our pollution is from the transportation sector. So it's wonderful that it's getting out there in the public in this way, because climate is such a doomsday conversation all the time. But, you know, it's kind of harnessing the, the positives of, you know, people working remotely and not having as many cars on the road.
0: Well, Kabul, you're always talking to people who are, don't believe you that it's human cause. Are you hearing from people saying, wow, look how much it's changed in a relatively short period of time?
4: I am. And it's one of those, <laughs> you know, you have to be careful because, you know, you've had these conversations with people and so they, they don't really kind of remember uh, you saying it, but when they say it, you just, you know, it's, it's building off of exactly, and so what opportunity does this give us? You know, how, how can we change the way we work? How can we change the way we just behave in general and, and make this sort of pollution decline more of the norm?
0: And Beth, what I was also taken with in this period of time is that it takes a fair amount of us staying off the road, but in the scheme of things, It's not a huge amount of effort, and yet we've seen already some change.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I don't think the drop of emissions just personally will, will likely change people's minds that climate change is real or, man-made. Uh, if you man, may, I mean, I think we, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of research out there that evidence is not going to change people's minds because it's based on values and beliefs. But to me, the parallels are really interesting because COVID-19 is demonstrating that in the face of a, of a really big threat And this is sort of a silver lining. It is possible to get people to change their behavior, something climate change activists have been trying to do for decades. And I don't know if a lot of them will be long-lasting. Telecommuting might be. That that does have climate benefits. But I think there's something to take away from that, that that change is possible on a societal level. It's coming at this enormous economic cost right now, and and no one wants that. But I, I think if you look deeper into the drop in emissions, the changes of people's behavior, I think some people are realizing that, that getting to a place like whether it's more telecommuting, that have dual benefits for a person and climate, that is not as hard as they thought. So I, I think I believe that.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Dr. Bernstein?
2: You know, <laughs> when things are really bad, I think everyone wants to find something good and better air quality is a good thing. In my mind, I, I would agree with Beth. I, I don't know that anyone is going to change their minds over climate policy or even air pollution policy over the reality that. COVID has so wrecked our economy that we're not putting out pollution. Uh, what I do think, though, is, is that we will hopefully have enough oomph to really bring to the table the reality that air pollution matters. I mean, the fact that people are looking at it and saying, boy, air pollution's better." That that could be good for health. Think about the shift that's gone from working in person to working remotely. If this pandemic had happened in 1980, that would have never been possible, right? So mm. the reality today, as opposed to 30 or 40 years ago, we have technologies to turn to. And so I think the good news is that if we can use our oomph to really push on the adoption of these technologies, people are going to realize that, you know, you can get a, a lot of benefit from moving in that direction. And, and, and they're available and in this country, thankfully, increasingly affordable.
0: And also, I, I just want to highlight Beth saying that it some part of that is your behavior, too, that you actually, uh, you know, one of the things that people are struggling around being inside on these stay-at-home orders is having a lack of control. But you actually have some control about, you know, doing some of this behavior and could think about that a little bit differently differently once we go back to, quote-unquote, whatever normal is. I'm I'm, I'm using air quotes here. Now, while at the same time we've seen this impact, the Trump administration has rejected stricter air quality standards for car emissions. The administration was actually trying to do more, but they had a disagreement within the body of the scientists at the EPA about whether or not the standards that he wanted to drop down to were okay or not. But from the outset... Just my average read of this, it's not good. (laughs) It's going to set us back many, 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 many years in terms of where we were in controlling some of the air pollution from the cars. And since we're talking about what we have seen improve in just a very short time, when the cars get back on the road and they don't have to follow the stricter standards that had been there uh, most recently under the Obama administration, where are we?
2: Well, if it were just the fuel economy standards, it would be troublesome enough, but it isn't. There's a whole suite of things that are being done, both for cars and and other vehicles and power plants that are contributing to worse air pollution, as I alluded to in this country. And I think that the challenge is that we're putting people's lives at risk and children's health at risk, and that there seems to be in the administration a real desire to put polluters first and people second. Uh, And I don't know why they don't want to rely on science. If you look at, for example, what's coming out with the rollback of the mercury air toxics rule, which is designed to prevent mercury pollution and other toxic pollutants coming out of power plants, they essentially are pulling an Enron. They're changing how they do their accounting of benefits mm. so that it looks like this is a bad idea. And and so, um, you know, all I can say to that is, is you know, I, I very much hope that people around the country who are, you know, seeing their loved ones getting sick with things like heart attacks and strokes, uh, potentially lung cancer or diabetes, we now, because air pollution is worse in this country, have to ask every time that happens is are we seeing this disease because the air we're breathing is worse. And if you have to ask that question, we have to realize that, that we're voting people into office who take different attitudes about whether people need to be first or pollution needs to be first.
0: So I read this startling statistic that this new rules, which is, means less regulation, will lead to nearly a billion additional metric tons of climate-warming CO2. And the same piece says the consumers will end up losing money by buying about 80 billion more gallons of gas. So it's kind of a double whammy.
4: Yeah, it definitely furthers our addiction to fossil fuels. And, you know, the EPA's responsibility is to protect our health and environment. From the impacts of climate change, and this rollback is setting us up for, uh, you know, more hurricanes, more pandemic. You know, it, it's really setting us up in the wrong light to be when ta- we should be tackling climate change. Instead, we're of going off the cliff here,
0: and it's it's very troublesome to
4: environmentalists for sure.
0: Now, Cabell, uh, I just want to follow up and say the reason that it's it's not uh, even Less regulation is that actually the automakers <laughs> stepped up and said, well, you can't go any further than that because then we'll be out of competition with our other global brethren in making making cars because the people at this point, en- enough of the people, expect to have cars that are going to be not as damaging in terms of the, the air pollution quality. So it's startling in and of itself just to think that it, it would have been Even more. But the automaker said, no, 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 you can't go. can't go any further. That's a little bit startling on its face. So that brings me to the people have thus far anyway bought into many of them that we would like to have cleaner cars. We want to have cleaner air. And so I don't know. Are they going to buy cars that have now gone back to the way it used to be, which was not good?
4: So I also read that the idea of this is to make cars, it's estimated that we'll make cars about $1,000 cheaper. So, you know, the Trump administration is trying to say, well, we're doing this because the economy is in a slope. So, you know, here you go. We, we, we heard you that you want to be able to buy more vehicles. Therefore, this will make it so, you know, they'll be cheaper for you. And at least here in Massachusetts, the writing is on the wall that we want more EVs, but we can't have EVs without more charging stations.
0: Electronic vehicles.
4: Yes, sorry, yes. Let's say that Earth Day was created because the country was choked by vehicle exhaust, right? So, you know, and and the EPA, all of that happened in 1970 because in the 70s, pollution was out of control. So I think that people have have kind of already woken up to that, and so the pushback is real. That, you know, through automakers and just through their consumers that, you know, gas is, ex- is expensive enough, even though right now where I live, it's $1.55. But, you know, that's going to increase and, and people don't want to have to keep paying at the pump. And, you know, electric vehicles also have benefits when it comes to just oil changes and, and transmission fluid and everything
3: else. I mean, in the long run, it is cheaper.
0: Beth, uh, do you want to add something? Since
3: Donald Trump took office, the administration has gutted more than 90 environmental rules, something like that. Maybe it might be a little less, a little more. And just in the next month alone, the claim to roll back half a dozen environmental regulations. And I just want to really underscore something. It's kind of wonky, but it's super important. The EPA is, is according to to several news reports, trying to force through a rule that's going to limit what scientific studies the EPA can use when writing or revising public health rules. And and it's now going to require, like, the studies have to make their underlying data publicly available, which sounds like a great nod towards transparency and greatness, but a lot of these studies often rely on confidentiality agreements. A lot of people are really worried that's going to significantly curb scientific and medical research. And, and so that may be kind of complicated to unpack right now, but it's the whole package that's what's happening. And I think both environmentalists and policy experts are quite nervous during the pandemic when all eyes are on corona. There's going to be these rollbacks that the public doesn't really get at to in the proper way.
0: And I... I am brought to mind in this conversation, the way you put it about the FDA, Um, there were huge protests about some of the 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 information that consumers wanted to find out about some of these medical devices that were sort of swept under the rug behind these walls that consumers couldn't get access to. And there was a great amount of protest about it when it became clear how much of that was happening. And what you suggest is it's it's kind of similar to, to, to that. And you're right. If research stops and if people are not able to find out what is actually the bottom line on in terms of damage as a result of some of these regulations, we're in a whole different situation. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm here with Beth Daly of The Conversation, Dr. Aaron Bernstein of Boston's Children's Hospital, and Cobble Eames of the Better Future Project. We're continuing an hour-long conversation about the latest in environmental news. So what should be the response, Dr. Bernstein? I read these articles about the rollback, particularly about the auto-emission rollback. And there was actual disagreement in the EPA, scientists who are supposed to help make a decision about this or at least offer their, their thoughts on it. And I, I'm at a loss as to what consumers can do, because if Beth is right, and I know that she is, and a lot of this starts to go out of reach for the consumers for us to even know about what's happening, we're in the dark.
2: You know, people still can vote. I think that's one thing consumers can do. No one really wants to pay more for gasoline. And so one of the major reasons that people buy things that people look at when they buy a car is how much they're going to spend on gas. And the other thing, you know, this idea that we're going to make cars cheaper so that people can afford them. Well, that's great, except the data show us that the price of cars adjusted for inflation hasn't really changed with all these improvements in fuel economy. And this is just a common theme when it comes to whether it be the, the scrubbers uh, to remove air pollution on coal plants or, or other measures that have improved air quality. industry will often first jump up and say, this is going to put us out of business. And then five years later, they realize this was a great investment. And, and, and the auto companies, frankly, don't want this. The main issue, by the way, with car expenses is that the the wages of the lower half of the country have not kept pace. With the, you know, the upper percentile for sure. And so the real challenge we face is not the price of the car. It's what we're paying people for for work in this country and the fact that for those people and this COVID has brought out in spades who are least fortunate among this because they don't have access to good medical care. They're the ones who are going bankrupt when they get sick. So you know, w- without the protections that are afforded to every other citizen in the world in a country that is as wealthy as ours, and frankly, lots of countries that are less well-off to their health, people are vulnerable to health bills. They're less able to pay for things like cars and, and suggest that a one-time EPA rule, which carries huge health burdens um, to everybody, and particularly the folks who are supposedly going to benefit from this price decrease, it just doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, well, that's a depressing note, but I think you're absolutely correct. I want to circle back to something that you mentioned in passing, Beth, but I want to go a little bit more deeply into it, and that is the impact of uh, COVID-19 on firefighters. And the reason I bring it up right after what Dr. Bernstein just said has to do with, in this country anyway, it so often depends on who is impacted before there can be a response. So we've heard a lot and we'll continue to hear a lot about the least among us who are most impacted by COVID-19 on every level, economically and certainly health-wise. And in this conversation, being hit terribly hard with the impact of pollution and air quality. So... I think about the firefighters who are considered, well, they've used the term heroes out in the West, particularly as summer is approaching. We know we're going to have some. And these are people that are held in high esteem. And it turns out that a wildfire smoke makes it worse for them. So It puts them more at risk for coronavirus. Talk about what that means and how that works and then... Whether or not this, again, will make people sit up and take notice. I'm always wondering if there are ways into uh, a conversation to open up people's eyes in ways that they hadn't considered before. And since COVID is doing a lot of that on many levels, it may be in this group of people as well.
3: No, I think, I think there's something to that. I mean, it's a conversation we talk a lot about how to highlight some of these inequalities. And, and I'm going to be just blunt. Sometimes I think people's eyes glaze over because the, the story sounds familiar, you know, and we, we think a lot about looking at different groups. But the firefighters, it just, it's an interesting little and important snippet. It's like there's always something called camp crud in uh, firefighter camps, and it's sort of this upper and lower respiratory illness that is accompanied by like a cough and fatigue that's become common in firefighting camps. And firefighting camps are also very, uh, people are in them and they're very in close proximity to each other. And it's and it it's been known for some time it can spread contagious microorganisms, hence this thing called camp clubs. I, I mean, just, I'm just highlighting another group of people who are at risk from COVID because they're inhaling those, Articulate matters that the TAN school so aptly defined. So, how do you fix it? Well, there's ways to fix it. You have better camp hygiene, better access to medical care, in these camps, trying to make isolation possible. But, you know, most firefighter camps you can imagine are not quite outfitted for this. So, it'll be challenging. But if you raise awareness, it does get people, like, to your point, Callie, thinking about um, how different groups of people are affected in, in unequal ways.
0: The results seem pretty bad. Do you think it'll be so impactful that a lot of firefighters will refuse actually to go into some of these wildfires? I mean, they can do other jobs, but that but but wildfire, as we know, is a particular kind of firefighting um that takes extra anyway without the thinking about a risk of coronavirus.
3: I, I think a lot of wildfire firefighters see themselves much like medical doctors on the front line. They're checking the public. They mm-hmm. do it out of a, a sense of uh, duty in many ways. So if that's true, its, it's uh, I'm sure some people may, may step down, but it's unlikely a lot will, much like you see doctors on the front line showing up every day. Um, yeah. I don't know how other people feel about that, but.
0: Well, I just note that even the frontline workers are concerned about bringing a, this is something they can bring back to their families, coronavirus. So it becomes, you know, not just a singular impact on the particular firefighter, but now we're, you know, more, even more communally, if you will. So some of those frontline health workers that we're talking about don't go home or, you know, or they have to be concerned about that. And they are because they know it's not just them. It's, it's the other people that they come in contact with. Um, I just thought that was a very interesting piece and another way of looking at, you know, how this, uh, as we've all said in this conversation, how COVID-19 is highlighting certain kinds of realities that weren't before. Okay, one piece of maybe good news in this. Kabul, you pointed out that in Virginia, Governor Northam has actually signed (laughs) clean energy legislation in the midst of all this. That's pretty amazing.
4: Yeah, it it, it (laughs) is. And they're the first southern states to join the regional greenhouse gas initiative, too, which is a cap and trade market that all the states here in the northeast have been a part of. So it, it's it's pretty remarkable. You know, and he threw in some environmental justice in this bill or this law now as well around um, just energy companies having to pay penalties for not meeting their targets and that that revenue will now fund job training and renewable energy programs and disadvantaged communities. He added disability in his environmental justice policy, which is something that is usually not discussed, unfortunately, in climate circles. it's, It's very focused on frontline communities when we talk about environmental justice. So to have him insert disabilities is fantastic, but I want to point out he's also a doctor. So I think that he understands this at a level that, you know, others might not. And so, um, you know, in calling it the Virginia Clean Economy Act is also a key there because we need to start looking at green incentives as bettering our economy because of the opportunity that it gives us. Uh, you know the Green New Deal is looked at as opportunity, an opportunity to invest in green jobs and infrastructure and and uh, and so I was really surprised to be honest that it came out when it did, but it's it's a it's a signal, I think, to the rest of us that Virginia is you know open for business first of all when it comes to the renewable energy sector uh, because they want to have fifty two hundred megawatts of offshore wind, which is Very large. We only have two contracts here in Massachusetts, and it's about 1600 megawatts. So it's a huge job creator. And I was just being from Virginia myself. um, You know, there are a lot of people down there that are not happy with this. But, you know, he took a stand and I, I applaud him for doing so.
0: I just want to note that when I say just sign this, I mean, like, in the last few days, just signed, which is pretty mm-hmm. remarkable, given that we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic and um, there's a lot to discuss. Uh, some parts of this also appear to set up Virginia and I'm sure there are other states in this position to be oppositional to what the federal government may be doing in terms of its standards. So, uh, again, as we're seeing that with governors now and how they respond uh, to the pandemic in their states, we may yet see that with Virginia as as time goes on. But the, the, the state legislature's laws uh, really are in opposition to what what's happening on the federal level.
4: I mean, and I saw that California created its own pact with Washington and Oregon <laughs> to just say, like, you know, we, we, we're going to we're going to do our own thing here because the federal government is not is not playing well. And, you know, a lot of people see this this pandemic and the situation that we're all in as nature sending us all to our rooms. And so there are states that are dedicated to coming out of this in a recovery mode that invests in their communities and in their citizens.
0: Coming up, we're continuing our hour-long conversation about the environment and COVID-19. And in the midst of a pandemic, as we've just said, we've just noted the response of a state moving to clean energy legislation. What other connections should we be looking at between COVID-19 and climate change and the environment in this moment? And also, Earth Day Goes Digital. More of our conversation next on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. ¶¶ back. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. We're using the full hour for our environmental roundtable this week to talk about COVID-19 and its impact on the environment and the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Joining me, Beth Daly, editor and general manager at The Conversation U.S., Dr. Aaron Bernstein, interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He's also a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. And Kabul Eames, legislative manager at the Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. So, in a few days, April 22nd to be specific, we'll be celebrating or acknowledging, however you look at it, the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Let's take a listen to Walter Cronkite, who covered that very first Earth Day. Here's a clip from the original broadcast of CBS News Special Report with Walter Cronkite about the first Earth Day in 1970.
1: Good evening. A unique day in American history is ending. A day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. Earth Day, a day dedicated to enlisting all the citizens of a bountiful country in the common cause of saving life from the deadly byproducts of that bounty. The fouled skies, the filthy waters, the littered earth. As a demonstration, its success was mixed beyond expectations here, far below there. No one now can know exactly how many took part. We do have an idea how many planned participation, student groups in 2,000 colleges and 10,000 lower schools, citizen groups in 2,000 communities. By one measurement, Earth Day failed. It did not unite. It did attract that broad cross-section of America its sponsors wanted, not quite. Its demonstrators were predominantly young, predominantly white, predominantly anti-Nixon. Often its protests appeared frivolous, Its protesters curiously carefree. Yet the gravity of the message of Earth Day still came through. Act or die.
0: So that day, everybody was outside. That was part of it. Uh, Many of the celebrations, they had a very large uh, national collection of folks led by college students at that time, interested in saving the Earth, as they said. This year, celebrating the 50th because of COVID-19, they have moved it to a digital celebration. So this is the first time in the 50-year history of Earth Day that there will be a digital global platform for folks to acknowledge uh, where we are as we take a look at the celebrations of the Earth. I should say that right after Earth Day, Congress passed, uh, the original one, passed the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act. As we know, those are pretty important to sustainability and other issues of, of concern with regard to uh, the world, the, the Earth, and, and our health. And now we're, here we are 50 years later. How should we regard Earth Day, Beth Daly? What is its relevance in this moment?
3: You know, I, I, I'm struck by this idea of a, a digital celebration. To me, one of the greatest things about Earth Day is its power to inspire and get people out to actually do physical cleanups. Like, there's thousands of organized cleanups all over all over the country and, 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 and the world. And, and to me, that, you know, it, 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 it's a shame because I think that that's so powerful. It shows, while we can celebrate and think about Earth Day in a social distancing way, the real meat about physically gathering and actually physically cleaning up the environment that we live in and care so much about will be lost this year. And I find that, you know, disappointing. I, I do think what we might see out of it is sort of smaller efforts throughout but over a longer period of time. Maybe not an Earth Day, but, you know, we start having kind of the stays a lot more often to remove all the billion pieces of water from our environment. Um, but, yeah. All right. Doc
0: Bernstein.
2: I think what, you know, strikes on this notable anniversary of Earth Day is, is what the founders uh, of the movement really captured at that time, which which I think is that we, we have to protect the environment to protect ourselves. And, and you heard in the opening phrase from Cronkite was that this was a, a race for our survival. And, and, and no moment in our history makes that clearer than this one. i taking care of children who we were concerned had this virus. And, and when I touched their hand, it, it re- reminded me that I am essentially connecting myself to potentially a bat halfway around the world. And and, and so, you know, from that, as you said, Kelly, from that uh, origin of Earth Day, you know, the rules you mentioned have saved millions of people's of uh, lives. And and the challenge we face right now, and to me, this is the the opportunity digitally experienced or otherwise of Earth Day this year, which which is we now have to share those benefits uh, with everyone. So the folks who have benefited most from the improvements in the environment, which which are unmistakable and, and frankly have done amazing things, not just for our lives, but for the economy of the United States. Have really benefited too few people. And, and so in this century, what we need to do is recognize that we're all better off when these benefits are distributed on a much broader base. And so my hope is that particularly at this time where we recognize so clearly that, that, that each of our health you know, depends upon, you know, not just whether or not reading eating the right foods and exercising, all of which is challenging as we're cooped up <laughs> in our homes, uh, but on the health of the people who are around us and, frankly, people around the world. And that if we leave huge swaths of our fellow humans in, in, in states that we ourselves would deem totally unacceptable, that's not just a moral problem, which it absolutely is and obviously an immense problem for their own welfare, it's a problem for us directly. And so I, I look at this moment, and, and 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 I think the reflection on the 50th anniversary is an opportunity to, to think about that and recognize that we can take the benefits through the technologies, through the science that we've gotten, and, and, and distribute them in ways that are going to benefit everybody. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Kabul, what I think is interesting, um, this is a quote from the uh, New York Times the day after the first Earth Day, uh, which was April uh, 22nd, 1970. The Times reported conservatives were for it, liberals were for it, Democrats, Republicans, and independents were for it. So were the ins, the outs, the executive, and legislative branches of the government. That was the first Earth Day. And as you hear that and reflect on where we are today, what do you think in terms of relevance of Earth Day and where we are?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's something that I always go back to because being a Southerner, I, I do remember it being kind of an, an idea that, you know, as conservationists, as we were called, um, we were conserving our our beautiful earth. And so, you know, I, I remember when littering became a fine and I remember the um, the commercials where, with the trash with the Native American Indians tear. And, you know, I, I remember it being more of a global effort. And and I don't, you know, as far as Earth Day and thinking about um, this pandemic and, and COVID and celebrating Earth Day in this moment, it strikes me that th- this is the one time that we have all come together on something where everyone is in the same boat. When when you're out and about in the world and you're doing your shopping and going right back home as you should. that um, when you look in everyone's eyes, we're all in the same, we're all experiencing this in different ways, but we're all kind of in the same boat here. And I think that that gives us an opportunity to think about other people, because generally when we're out in the world, it's it's a very you know, auto-centric kind of feeling of, I'm late for work, I've got to get this, I've got to do that, I've got to pick up the kids. And now when you're out and you see other people, you understand that there is a collective um, kind of suffering that's happening. And so I think that this Earth Day and the organizers around Earth Day this year are really kind of looking to Unify people again and kind of bring us back to that before it was politically weaponized before environmental legislation was politically weaponized and to that we all share this world and that your health affects my health and your well being affects my well being and that you know and that this planet's health also affects our well being. On the, you know, because we're two months away from hurricane season. And, you know, that's a situation that is also going to exacerbate what we're already dealing with. So I think that it gives us an opportunity to really think about each other differently and move forward together in unity the way we used to.
0: Well, I will say in response to that, I actually wrote about this. Everywhere I go now, people say to you, stay safe. So that is a a feeling of connectedness and a feeling of, you know, we are all in this together and at that level. But I wonder, um, because Dr. Bernstein, you didn't actually address this. Uh, Beth did. And so Kabul and, and Dr. Bernstein, does the digital aspect of it? Take away, add. What do you think, Dr. Bernstein? You re- you referred to our better understanding or our need to better understand the impact that we have on less wealthy nations. But does the digital part of this acknowledgement of this day and what it's supposed to mean take away, or it's what, what do you think?
2: Well, you know, I I, I I'm less concerned with the digitalization because we can't we can't change that. I mean, we're we're. You know, we're doing that because science has shown us that this is what's needed to, to you know, protect ourselves and, and and, and frankly, the, the people in our communities. And, and so, you know, I think the, the thing I would say to that is, uh, and this is something I would say in particular is a really important message for for the younger people in our society, which is we have to do things sometimes not just for ourselves, Um and as, as, as you know, children, when it comes to COVID, as a, gen, as a broad brushstroke rule, are better off than adults. We do it because it matters to the people who, you know, who are our neighbors, who are our grandparents, who are our communities. Uh, and, and that that ultimately is not just an altruistic act, uh, although it certainly is, uh, it, it is in fact good for ourselves. Uh, because when the global economy shuts down, uh, you know everybody's worse off. So I, I think that whether that happens through people engaging on Earth Day and moving forward through Zoom links and <laughs> webinars, or, or in fact, it happens in our town halls, uh, in our schools, uh, in our uh, you know corner offices of of, of executive suites. I think that that is the, the the critical part of understanding that that we can glean from what is other, you know, in so many other ways, an um, enormously painful experience for 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 way too many
0: people. Okay, Kabul. Does the digital aspect of it make it better, worse, indifferent, as you're concerned?
4: There's nothing more inspiring than to go out with people and clean up um, a river. All of those activities and all of those events of bringing people together for common cause are really inspiring. And so we have to inspire each other now digitally. But I I do think that it will kind of circle back to why we're here. And a lot of it in the minds of of climate activists is that it's it's a failure of government. And so I think we're going to be really focusing on voting. Um, and turning out people to vote and and trying to get people more engaged in that process. And and therefore, you know, if, if we do that, then maybe we can get government to work for people instead of against us.
0: Okay. I am interested in the fact that as we're acknowledging the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, that another anniversary, not so great one, that 10 years ago, BP Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded and... Not really much has happened in terms of of figuring out how to make sure that doesn't happen again, and we address the impact. Talk about that.
3: Yeah. So the the BP oil spill. I mean, there's so many lessons to be learned from it. You know, the oil spill commission that came out of it found multiple identifiable mistakes uh, that caused a blowout, as, as well as the government's oversight. The industry developed systems to contain blowouts in deep water. Um, there have been improvements in operational safety. Um, within companies themselves and across the industry. Uh, the Department of Interior created a Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement. But, but despite its progress, Congress still has not enacted legislation to improve safety or even raise energy companies really ridiculously low liability limits for oil spills. It's just $134 million for U.S. offshore facilities like Deepwater Horizon, um, and the Trump administration, speaking of these uh, rollbacks, has reversed or relaxed safety reforms, including safe pressure margins allowed in the well. Um, the list goes on and on. So we, we actually know what how to fix some of the problems. But politics has intervened, it seems, in a pretty consistent way. I do want to give, like, a little bit of a a silver lining. Um, I covered—I was down uh, covering um, the BP oil spill, and— you know, the, the predictions for doom and gloom or coastal fisheries in particular were, were tremendous. Um, You know, a thing saying we would have no fisheries at all are the most draconian projections. And they didn't turn out to be true, actually. Um, coastal fish populations didn't crash after Deepwater Horizon spill. And it, it's, it's one of the most per, more perplexing but good news that came out of it. I, I don't want to overstate the good news. We're still finding... Uh, scientists are still finding, you know, oil oil uh, parts in fish livers, but this idea that um, fisheries were going to collapse did, did not did not happen, and scientists are not totally sure why, um, and they're trying to understand how complex coastal fisheries are. Yeah, it's it's really it's, it's a really really interesting it's an interesting thing. It's yeah.
0: Well, it's just an interesting. It, 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 for me, it's interesting that all these things come together in the middle of of this horrific thing that we're living with, this COVID-19. And it's it's amazing that it's been 10 years. I think uh, many of us remember those those ducks, those animals, you know, covered in oil. And I mean, that really brought home so much of, of what the impact of that was. And to think about it, has been that long. And here we are. Well, for that matter, I guess the people who started Earth Day are saying the same thing about 50 years And with Earth Day. So... There we have it. I want to close in this way, and that is this isn't the first time that I've heard many people say we need a kind of a green Marshall Plan to fight COVID-19 meaning there needs to be some coordinated, all together, let's think beyond this moment of crisis as to what happens afterwards in some kind of way. Somebody mentioned, but I'll say it again, that a couple of uh, sets of governors on the East Coast and the West Coast have gotten together to think about regional ways in which they can lift the stay-at-home order and think beyond, you know, just trying to keep people safe in this moment. But what happens after we let open up the economy and people go about their business. And what does that mean? And how do we not forget many of the lessons that you all have mentioned today that we need to, to, to continue thinking about because COVID has now brought it out in the open? So I want to start this way. This is Greta Thunberg speaking to global leaders at the UN Climate Action Summit last September.
6: This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. How dare you continue to look away and come here saying that you are doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight? You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. But no matter how sad and angry I am, I do not want to believe that. Because if you really understood the situation and still kept on failing to act, then you would be evil, and that I refuse to believe.
0: I just thought, aside from her her righteous anger, that... You know, it's a reminder that we have to go forward, that there is a future, that there are many people her age who are going into it, and that this horrific thing that's taken us globally has to be thought about in terms in short term and long term ways. So, Dr. Bernstein, Green Marshall plan to fight COVID-19 and think long term about how we come out on the other side with regard to climate change. Well, I think the the point you made, Kelly, uh,
2: about how we're seeing p- new partnerships emerge I- in the absence of of uh, effective leadership elsewhere, um, is really something that I think is is becoming increasingly important with our you know figuring out how to get out of COVID, but it's also critical to the conversation around climate. So so, Kabul referenced earlier how Virginia is joining Reggie. Well, Reggie is the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Uh, There's now the the TCI, the Transportation Climate Initiative, that is looking to decarbonize the transportation corridor along the eastern seaboard. And and so I think what's what's really encouraging and and we've seen, frankly, before this administration is that um, the, the actions at the local and state level are what drive innovation and, frankly, progress that we need here. And, and it would be helpful if, if, if Congress and the federal government, re, you know, paved those paths for us better. But even without that, you see tremendous progress, whether that's in the initiatives that were referenced or the adoption of electric bus fleets or changes to food systems. You know, we have the largest penetration of electricity generation from renewable uh, renewable uh, energy systems in places like Kansas and Oklahoma and Iowa, uh, you know, and, and, and all these things are happening. And, and, and I think that the, the good news is, is that reality and truth show us that this is the path that's going to benefit us most moving forward. And so I think the more we can make our conversation on Earth Day and moving forward about the, the reality that the future we want matters to our lives right now uh, that it improves the health of our children it improves the health of those who are most vulnerable in our communities and providing the scientific evidence that makes that clear is going to continue to accelerate the changes we need at a much broader level uh, and and so I, I do think that you know there's just this enormous groundswell happening in, in places far and wide uh, in the united states Uh, related to climate and the environment that 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 is making a huge difference. And and what my hope is, is that it it, it accelerates. uh, We do everything we can to accelerate it as much as possible.
0: I actually think that's a good place to stop. So I want to thank all of you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Stay safe, Callie. (laughs) Yes, be well, everybody. Oh, yes, I'm going to try. Beth Daly is editor and general manager at The Conversation U.S., Dr. Aaron Bernstein, interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. And Kabul Eames is the legislative manager at the Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. That's it for this special one-hour edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. We're on the web at WGBH.org, News, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Melissa Rosales is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.